Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to episode two Push Dose EMS from Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. Today's episode brought to you in part by social distancing, the reason I no longer have to wear pants to work. I want to thank everybody for joining us today. My name is Jeff Matcho. I'm your clinical education QA manager for Milwaukee County. I have brought some friends, many of them who were with us last time and a few new folks are with us today. Uh, so working top to bottom on my screen, uh, QA supervisor, Linda Matrish, welcome, how are you? Good, thank you. Um, uh, joining us for the first time live today, uh, a person who has worked in applied research and data for the last 14 years, uh, identify with a focus on identifying risk, applying in interventions and measuring impact, our data analytics manager for OEM, Shannon Graman. Graman. Sorry, pronunciations Hello. are hard, welcome. Your EMS division director, Dan Pojar, welcome Dan. Good morning, everybody. And our resident physician for the day, your associate medical director, Dr. Matt Chin. Welcome, Dr. Chin. Good morning, everyone. All right, well, welcome everybody. Thank everyone for making time their day to get this podcast out going, get some information out to our system and our providers. And we are jumping on the bandwagon, continue to talk about what everybody else is talking about. That reason I can no longer buy toilet paper when I go to the grocery store, COVID-19, the coronavirus. So we are gonna try and go through as much information as we can, what's relevant to our providers out there, what's going on in the county. This, all this information will come with a caveat. Today is April 7th at 1045 in the morning. This could change by 1115. So for those listening in the future, uh, please follow the links that we'll put down in the description to a lot of the websites that we're, we're gonna show lot for those that are here live. Uh, all of this information is pertinent as of right now, but things may have changed, may have updated in any amount of time going forward into the future. So please stay up to date with the number of notices, any other information coming out uh, from your services that will give you the most accurate and up-to-date information, but here's what we know so far. I'm initially going to turn the floor over and have a little discussion with Dr. Chin, kind of talking about the virus. What is it? What's going on? What do we know about it so far? So Dr. Chin, let's start from the medical side. What is this virus? Uh, what do we know about it? Yeah, sure, Jeff. So thanks for the introduction there. So. Um, just a couple uh, kind of introductory remarks. So as Jeff mentioned, we're going to talk about coronavirus. Uh, and so as a background, the coronavirus is actually uh, one of an ancient family of viruses. Um, so what we're looking at now is specifically called severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2. As you guys know, there is a coronavirus 1, which was the original SARS. Um, so this is the second novel coronavirus that's been um, found, and so it has that uh, nickname of SARS-CoV-2. Uh, it does call, uh, the disease process that it actually causes is called coronavirus disease, 
or COVID-19, which it's become uh, relatively common nomenclature now is to refer to it simply as COVID-19 with 19 uh, really indicating the year that it was uh, kind of found. So that's kind of the reference there. Um, just as a basic background, so kind of to give you an idea of the survivability of this virus, so obviously it was originally emerged in the Wuhan uh, province in China in late 2019 and is obviously attributed to the pandemic that we see coming across the world um, this to these uh, to today. Um, so just uh, some basic background. So on in terms of its transmissibility, um, there's been a couple studies looking at uh, or a single study in the New England Journal of Medicine published uh, looking at how long the virus actually survives, which is kind of helps us to mold our uh, processes for both PPE as well as decontamination. So we do know that um, it's, uh, you know, survives as an aerosol for several hours. Uh, they've looked at it in terms of survivability on plastics, uh, steel, copper, and cardboard. Uh, we know that it, that irregardless of the surface, it does degrade significantly over periods of time, but that time uh, for which it degrades is variable depending on the surface. Uh, we know that it's about 24 hours uh, our, guess, our best guess is that it's about 24 hours of survivability on cardboard-like structures, um, maybe up to 72 hours on plastic, uh, and then, uh, you know, potentially uh, as long on kind of stainless steel and other solid surfaces as well, about 48 hours. Um, again, you know, these are all um, kind of best estimates and stuff, and so there's, um, you know, we've used some of these timeframes to discuss alternative measures uh, and decontamination options. Uh, so those are some of the things that we were kind of looking at in terms of this uh, virus. Um, so uh, does that kind of answer your question a little bit there, Jeff? Yeah, absolutely. So really best practice is really what we've done forever when it comes to communicable diseases or even just ill patients in general. Proper PPE wearing, good donning doffing techniques, uh, and washing your hands. Sounds like it's going to be keeping a lot of our providers safe out there. Yeah, correct. So hand washing, hand hygiene, all those things are incredibly important, uh, you know, these days um, with this as well as, you know, in our general EMS practice. So we should really just be reinforcing this as our general practice with or without the pandemic ongoing currently. I said, so we're certainly seeing and we'll take a look at some maps and some numbers here in a little bit uh, when it comes to the numbers uh, of cases out there in the U.S. and the world, even locally, uh, how are uh, health departments, hospitals actually testing for this? Yeah, so as you mentioned before, these are really dynamic times. So this uh, testing tiers and strategies have changed um, over the past several weeks. Um, so currently we uh, utilize the Wisconsin Department of Health Services to really kind of give us an idea of what testing tiers look like. Uh, and much of it is based on supply chain. So availability of testing reagents and testing supplies and the capacity of the labs to be able to perform this. Initially, again, this was usually done at state labs or uh, county health labs or city health labs. Now um, that testing has been expanded to more um, private labs as well, associated with hospital systems or otherwise. So the testing capacity has increased over the past, um, you know, several weeks that we've as we've uh, gone into this, but we still do try to prioritize samples. So the Wisconsin Department of Health, um, the state labs are really prioritizing hospitalized patients with COVID-19 symptoms. Um, patients whose symptoms uh, where the rapid diagnosis is needed to inform uh, infection control practices. Um, residents of long 
long-term care facilities uh, with COVID-19 symptoms, as we've seen um, an outbreak in a long-term care facility can have significant detrimental impacts to the residents that live there. Uh, residents in jails, prisons, or other congregate settings, again, where people live in close proximity to each other, uh, and this, the chance of spread is significantly high. Um, healthcare workers and first responders. So um, those of you that are attending this podcast, you work in fire, EMS, and police for trying to prioritize the testing for those uh, people as well. Um, and so that is kind of the most recent guidance. Um, there's been, you know, several iterations of that. We went through a tiered structure, um, and now we're kindly on, currently on this type of guidance. And again, this is something that changes on a, a weekly, if not, um, you know, daily basis in terms of how we're prioritizing tests. But know that we certainly do understand the risks that all of our first responders um, have in exposure. And so those tests have always been prioritized um, to get performed uh, when indicated. Excellent. Do you have any idea if you can tell us right now what the turnaround time on a test is currently? I know for a long time it was a prolonged period and there's some reports that they're a little quicker. I'm just not sure what the reality is. Yeah, it probably, so that again, they're prioritizing some of these tests and it probably depends on the lab. I know that they're trying to turn these around as quick as possible. They're operating, you know, on a daily basis now, um, as opposed to just kind of Monday through Friday. Uh, and it depends on uh, the, the private labs as well too. So some hospital systems may be able to turn these tests around uh, within 24 to 48 hours. I would guess that the state labs are probably trying to do a similar turnaround time, um, but uh, I can't promise the, the turnaround time on those. Okay. Yeah. I, I won't hold you to you're doing your testing, but you know, just out of curiosity, see how long it would take if someone had the symptoms and got a test. Um, jumping a little bit ahead here, uh, to take a look at cases that we know about so far. Uh, let's start a little bit broad and go kind of federally, and then we can break it down into Wisconsin and then local um, what we're looking at as far as number of cases that have been confirmed, how the recovery has been going, uh, and what kind of that uh, mortality rate is along with this COVID-19. Yeah, so um, people have probably seen um, some of these projections and stuff in terms of uh, peak deaths and all that type of stuff. So a lot of people are referring to the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, which is what's on the screen there. Um, which is uh, published by the University of Washington. And so there's obviously, again, they update this at least once um, a week, usually on a Sunday or a Monday for that next week. Um, but again, these are such dynamic things that oftentimes even by the time it's published, these are out of date. Having said that, you know, for the United States, the projection is most recently when they did this, I believe it was updated on uh, the 7th, um, that, you know, it feels like in about eight days is when we're going to peak resource use, about April 15th. Um, again, they're anticipating a bed shortage and an ICU bed shortage, as you can see uh, represented on there as well. Um, same with uh, deaths, as you can kind of see, track right along with peak resource usage, again, about eight or nine days um, <clears throat> as well, and then total deaths again. The, the thing that the caveat to keep in mind with these estimations is as you can see, those shaded areas are um, areas of uncertainty. And so those are large amounts of uncertainty within there. Obviously, as the times get closer, you can see that that shaded area from you know day to day is relatively close. But as we predict further out, those lines get 
much bigger because the uncertainty increases depending on um, the, the dynamics of how we're treating this and how people are interacting over the next several days to weeks. Um, so those are kind of what we're using from a, a national standpoint to kind of look at. Um, from a more local standpoint, you can see Wisconsin as well. So you can cycle through these same projections to look at Wisconsin. Um, you know, 10 days until peak resource use is what's projected. Um, to keep in mind also, there are local epidemiology teams at the Medical College of Wisconsin and local health departments who are also trying to produce predictions uh, in terms of when we will have peak resource usage. Uh, obviously, those types of things are incredibly important for surge planning for hospitals, for patients who will be admitted to hospitals and or require floor or ICU level status. It's incredibly important to try to understand how many ventilators uh, potentially would be needed so we can acquire those supplies. And it's also very important in us determining our PPE usage um, and how much we, uh, in terms of how much supplies we have now and how much we would anticipate needing or best anticipate needing in the future. So these numbers, uh, while not absolute and have significant uh, areas of uncertainty, um, are part of a strategy of using um, both these numbers as well as locally developed numbers to try to predict all those types of things so that hospital systems and EMS systems can all attempt um, to best um, prognosticate what look like uh, in the next days and weeks uh, and even months uh, as we kind of, um, you know, continue through this pandemic. Yeah, it's nice that we have some folks up there that are trying to at least give us an idea of how bad it could get. Make sure everybody is prepared as possible for kind of that worst case scenario if we peak up to the very top. But fortunately, our trend lines have been quite a bit lower than the potentials. So let's hopefully a lot of the systems in place and the safer at home ideas um, are something that's helping protecting our population. Correct. And you can, you know, it's uh, if you have time, you can look at this. Um website and you can compare, for instance, Wisconsin to other places that are um, a little bit more active in terms of COVID. So places like New York, Detroit, or New Orleans, uh, where we see significant activity there. Um, and so you can kind of compare some of the trend lines uh, to those places uh, where we know they have significant activity. Yeah, so here's a quick look at New York expectation. So And I'm guessing at some point there will be some report that looks at, you know, population density and the occurrences. Uh, yeah, certainly. I'm sure there is, you know, certainly uh, using some deductive logic, you would think that the closer people are together at the, you know, given the, the characteristics of any sort of uh, infection, the more likely they are to get infected. Yeah, so taking a look. So that's kind of our projected needs and uh, cases and deaths. Uh, Let's take a look quick at what's kind of current. Um, so here I put up for you, this is the current CDC's last updated page that was updated yesterday. Uh, with cases in the total cases in the US is at 300, just under 331,000, just under 9,000 deaths. And you can do some simple math to look at kind of case fatality rates for those. The caveat to that is obviously there's a significant bias um, in calculating absolute case fatality rate because these are really amongst people tested. And, and as we know, the majority of people likely are not going to be tested. So all those people who, it's, who you know, follow um, the government guidance and stay at home, 
uh, and manage symptoms at home, likely many of those, or if not all of them, will not get tested. So there's a significant bias to patients you know, who are getting tested and that, as you saw from the testing tiers, we're really prioritizing hospitalized patients and that other high risk groups. Uh, but you can imagine, you know, if you're uh, risk for, if you're being admitted and then tested for COVID, your chance of hospitalization is obviously 100% because you've been hospitalized and then tested. Um, so, you know, keeping in mind that these, um, you know, numbers uh, and the case fatality rates you could calculate from them could potentially be, uh, you know, very um, biased by the fact of who we're testing and testing availability. Certainly. So with the limited amount of testing that's that's been going on and those that are really in need of it right now, this 331,000 is probably a fairly, is not, a, not an accurate number of the total number of cases that may be out there. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that, you know, it's likely a very gross underestimation of the active cases there. And again, just really represents, um, you know, who we're testing these days and what are the characteristics of those patients. Excellent. So yeah, anybody out there who wants the latest information nationally, the CDC website has all of the current recommendations, guidances. Uh, they do a daily SITREP report that can even show you globally. So we're looking at about 1.2 million confirmed cases globally with uh, just under 68,000 fatalities along with it. Lots of good data here, uh, breaking down all the different countries and different regions. Uh, so if anyone's curious how uh, globally this pandemic's being looked at, these are all available from the CDC's website. And once again, just a friendly reminder that if you're listening to this on Podbean, uh, these, all of these website links will be linked in the description for you. So that's a quick look kind of at US, uh, we've seen some of the Wisconsin stuff. Uh, how about the county? Yeah, locally, I'll so steal a little bit of Shannon's thunder here. Yeah, uh, I won't take uh, I won't take too much time because I know Shannon uh, and her team deserve the majority of credit. And I honestly can't take any credit for this uh, great dashboard. So, uh, but yeah, so you know, in Milwaukee, thirteen hundred and twenty-four cases again as of you know this morning on the seventh. Uh, that number obviously changes at least twice daily. Um, when we get updates from WEDS um, and potentially even more in the future, it'll get updated. Um, you know, at this point, 49 deaths. And then uh, as you can see with the county's focus on racial equity, there's been a huge push um, from people to really focus on uh, race uh, and all the types of things that play into, um, you know, racial equity in terms of uh, management of this pandemic as well too. And you can see all those interesting um, data points on there as well and kind of some graphical representation on this on this wonderful dashboard. Yeah, we will certainly get to Shannon and her team and all the information that they've been gathering as we've been going forward here. Uh, Dr. Chin, anything else on the medical side? Yeah, no, you know, we continue to, you know, Dr. Wesson continues to push out number notices um, that address both kind of uh, PPE and clinical care guidelines. So just encourage everyone to make sure they're looking at those We really try to condense that into the most important things to know from a clinical and operational standpoint moving forward. Um, and again, those are just as dynamic as many of the other things that we just talked about. So just make sure you're reviewing those uh, things to stay up to date. 
um, as well. And then, you know, obviously we're available and I know he has some time set aside for town halls as well to, to answer other questions. So we're happy to answer some of those here or if you want to meet one of those other formats, I know he's happy to talk with people there as well. Excellent. Thanks so much for the good information. And at this point, I'm going to poke and wake up Dan Pojar to kind of talk about what the county's doing. So 1,300 confirmed cases, 49 deaths. How's the county been responding to all of this? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I, I have been awake the whole time, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, just to start off, the county uh, and local municipalities, also elected officials, public health, representatives from a ton of different stakeholders have created what's called the unified EOC at the county. And what uh, that is, is basically the ICS org structure to break out people into their different uh, areas of expertise, advise, and also uh, be, the, be the respondent group. Uh, the fire departments did a fantastic job in the county coming together to create the regional response plan, as everyone knows, is the ARV response plan. Uh, that uh, guideline algorithm has been uploaded to the OEM app. So if people have questions about that, I know there's been some confusion about uh, when to call a specific COVID rig versus when not. Really the, the intent of this entire um, ARB program is to keep low acuity patients um, in their homes with follow-up as necessary and really take the patients that needed to go to the hospital to the hospital. Uh, and it's really to protect the patients that can stay home so they can uh, not get exposure. And then also the uh, physicians and nurses at the hosp uh, hospital systems can focus on the patients that need them the most. Uh, we've been tracking the data for the past few weeks. I, I'll let Shannon speak to that a little bit more, but uh, it seems like the request for service has been going up just a little bit, but our transport volume has dropped off. So the plan is working as intended. Um, and then also uh, one other really nice piece, I gotta give a big shout out and kudos to the West Dallas Fire Department. They've been taking on the logistics section of this uh, unified EOC. And they've essentially put together a virtual stockpile uh, listing all the PPE equipment in the area. I know PPE is a really big uh, concern of everyone in the country right now, um, but they've done a really nice job of, of organizing the, the spreadsheet to show what we have on hand. We're trying to develop ways to forecast what's gonna be used in the next few days, next few weeks, uh, to see what we need to order and how much. And uh, there's a lot of data pushes going into that, uh, that calculation right now. I said, are you able to talk about this national stockpile uh, availability of PP? I know it's been kind of a hot topic of, you know, how certainly we want to conserve the PP that we have, use it as responsibly as possible, no making N95 snowmans in your station. Uh, but is it, is it out there? Is it available? Is it Yes, I know there's been uh, a few requests to the state for the strategic national stockpile. Uh, the allocation hasn't been as great as we would have expected it to be. Uh, but I do know that those requests are going in quite frequently and they're trying to fill those as, as much as they can. Excellent. Yeah, and with everybody working together, hopefully that'll certainly help with, you know, making sure everyone's got the PPE that they need. As long as, again, we're conservative with it, uh, use it as necessary. Right. And another thing I wanted to point out about the PPE, there's a, uh, another thing I added to the app called the PPE matrix, which talks about 
um, contingency mode and crisis mode with the CDC recommendations for extension of use of PPE and then also some decon procedures. So I'd encourage everyone to get on the app and check that document out. There's some good information there about how we can uh, use the PPE for the future. And I'm sure our future number notices that are gonna be coming out uh, with any updates, we'll, we'll address that document as well. Excellent, yeah, I think having that out on the app is gonna be real beneficial. People can take a look at that as updated as we can keep it. Uh, those number notices have been nice and flying out regularly with any updates and anything they need to know. Uh, in our discussion with Dr. Chin, we kind of looked at some forecasting for uh, needs nationally at the state level. Uh, sounds like there might be an epidemiology team starting to get going here in the county. Yeah, that's correct. So um, every day I'm on a call in the morning with the public health officers and we're talking about what's the EMS system looking like, what's the, the public health side looking like, and now we've integrated an epidemiology team from the medical college, and they just got their hands on the data, so they're starting to process that now and try to create their forecast. There's not a good prediction just yet, um, but we're, we're really interested to see how that matches up with the uh, state of Washington's uh, epidemiology forecast. Excellent, yeah, we'll look forward to seeing that come out as soon as they can get their head around those numbers. Uh, you mentioned the RRV program and a lot of folks staying at home. Uh, for those that are staying at home, what's kind of being done for them? I know a lot yes. of products being recommended just to shelter in place and if it gets worse, blah, blah, blah. But uh, is there any follow up with them? Yeah, there is. Uh, the Milwaukee Fire Department's done a nice job of integrating those patients that can stay at home uh, into their community paramedic or mobile integrated healthcare follow up program. So, uh, We've kept several hundred patients out of the hospital systems over the past couple of weeks here, uh, and we have the, the follow-up process. I can let Linda uh, talk a little bit more about that. I don't want to steal her thunder. She's really been taking the lead on that and doing a really nice job, along with uh, Captain Mike Wright at the fire department with the uh, city of Milwaukee. Terrific. We'll look forward to hearing from Linda in just a few minutes. Uh, I do have a note here that might be of interest to a number of people out there. Uh, we have Zoles, and they... Zoll sent us a little present along with it, sounds like. Yeah, so we got the new cardiac monitors. Please uh, take care of them. Uh, they're, they're fresh off the bash here. Uh, one thing that we had been talking about them in the background for a little bit here was the ability to live stream the screen uh, to online medical direction. And so they have uh, not gotten the official FDA approval just yet, but it is in the beta testing phase and Milwaukee County was selected as the first site in the country to utilize this live stream feature. So basically what it does is it takes um, certain parameters from your screen on your Zolt and it will send it directly to uh, online med control over the internet and they can pull it up. So it's just like you transmit a 12 lead, it's the same kind of concept except this shows it in real time with maybe a one or two second lag. Um, but it will give the current vital signs, it'll show the rhythms, it can show end title waveforms, um, there's some, some pretty cool things with that. So we're gonna talk next week at Admin Review, uh, that's on Tuesday next week, about how we can best implement that. Uh, Zoll gave us 20 free software licenses to utilize across the county. So we spread those out as equitable as we could with the, the ALS transport units. And then our hope is uh, if we're pretty successful, we'll be able to get those for the rest of the units um, as well. Be excellent, exciting time to see. We can really start setting a precedent here uh, nationally, if we can find a good way and good utilization of that live stream to let the docs take a look at what's going on. Uh, yeah, I think time. one of the biggest benefits will be with uh, 
consults for cardiac arrest so you don't have to sit there and spit off you know all of your vital signs and your rhythm they'll be able to see it in real time you can really get to the nuts and bolts of uh of what you're trying to get the consult done with excellent thanks dan anything else from the county any big news coming up anything else you got for us Oh, COVID's been our biggest focus right now. I would also mention on our app with the COVID uh, stuff, there's also hospital instructions. We're trying to get all of the hospitals to tell us what they're doing as far as screening and visitor limitations. So you guys don't have to try and remember every hospital and what you're going to and what you're gonna encounter when you get there. So uh, we're trying to take some of that work off of your brain because you're focusing on your run volume right now. All right, thanks so much, Dan. Uh, Moving on, the much, much lauded, much talked about, and now gets to explain everything that she's done. Uh, Shannon, welcome. Uh, Thanks, John. You've had a busy time with all of this COVID fun and excitement. Um, we've been putting together some really good information uh, to get out there to the providers, to the public. Uh, probably first off the bat, uh, what we still got up on the screen is that dashboard. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. Happy to talk about the dashboard. That has been um, a labor of love over the last three weeks. Um, when we when we set out to create this dashboard, our goal was to um, get a get really good visual of what's going around the city in terms of city and county in terms of community spread, and then also see the breakouts of demographics of that spread. The story that started to emerge very, very quickly early on is that our um, Black African American population on the north side of the city is being um, disproportionately impacted by it. So um, this has sparked other conversations um, locally and nationwide. Um, I'm hearing now that this dashboard is turning into a model for how to um, talk about COVID-19 and how it impacts populations differently within a community. So. Uh, we're really excited to be on the forefront of that conversation right now. Um, for providers, I think the one thing to note in looking at this map is that although we definitely have some hot spots around the community, and actually in the last week we have started to see some um, increasing spread in South Milwaukee and Oak Creek that came out of our epidemiology team. We also have a hot spot growing in West Dallas. Um, so although some of these areas um, may be just starting to emerge as hot spots or there don't appear to be a lot of cases as of right now. Um, given the nature of testing and the nature of spread of COVID-19, I think it's safe to assume that um, there is significant spread throughout the county. And so we should all be providing, um, I'm sorry, following the guidelines um, set um, for how you know, providers engage with people in the field as well as how we go about our day-to-day -day life. Some um, predictions are saying that you can assume it's up to 10 times higher than the actual count you have in terms of spread in your community. Um, so I think that's just something that's important for everyone to note. I see, Jeff, that you're going through um, the dashboard and everybody can go in there and play after this, um, but you can see the total uh, confirmed cases by race, age range, gender, municipality, and then you can also see the, the demographic um, race breakout for the entire county. Um, on the right side, we also broke out race, ethnicity, age range, and gender for deaths. And when it comes to um, deaths related to COVID-19, we're also seeing that disproportionately hitting our black population. So it's definitely out there. Um, and really, as we zoom in, it's, it's really, it's everywhere. It is everywhere. Uh, 
So following the, you know, the normal guidance, the safer at home doctrine, just limiting your social interactions as best as possible is going to be still continue to be one of the better ways to keep yourself healthy and home. Uh, Absolutely. And we know we haven't hit our peak yet. So we're just going to continue to see these blue dots grow on the map um, and likely see those hot spots continue to spread uh, south of um, where we're currently seeing the hot spots. Sure. So that's quite, I mean, even still 1300 cases in, I mean, you can really down here from the middle of uh, March. So in the last two weeks, you've seen a pretty good spike. Uh, so we'll see how we'll continue to watch those trends, see how things go. Uh, how has that really impacted our EMS providers? Are we watching some data there too? Yes, we are. Um, I'm going to go through uh, two other sections of data that we've been looking at. So first, we wanted to get a sense as to um, how COVID-19 has impacted kind of the basic activities of or activity metrics of our EMS system. So system-wide, we've been looking at um, 911 calls uh, across the county. We only have access to certain data right now. It's Milwaukee County Call Center as well as uh, Milwaukee Fire Department data. And what we can see right now is that the number of calls, while the, it, it tends to fluctuate day to day, um, the number of calls are kind of at a flat trend. Um, so I think that's good news that we're not getting um, an increase in calls and overburdening the EMS system. Um, on top of looking at 911 calls, we're looking at patient encounters, so the count of the, the number of patients seen every day, um, as well as the number of patients transported. So as Dan noted earlier, it looks like we might have a slight increase in terms of patient encounters seen um, since March 8th, um, when just looking at the general trend line from then until now. Um, but then when we look at step back and look at the patients transported, that has slightly trended down. And if we were to look at the ratio of um, patient encounters resulting in transports, that is definitely trending lower. Um, one other thing that came up anecdotally a couple weeks ago is that uh, the county is seeing more calls for cardiac arrest. So we wanted to dig into that data a bit more, compare um, this time last year to this time, obviously this year. So since COVID-19 started to really hit our community. So looking at March 8th through current day. When we originally started to look at the first few weeks, there was a definite increase in cardiac arrests. And as we get further into this data collection, now we're starting to see those numbers decline a bit and the trends start to flatten. So I would say that we are definitely not out of the woods when it comes to this trend. Um, we haven't hit our peak yet. So um, I think we all just need to be prepared to um, see a potential increase in cardiac arrest and, and respond appropriately. Great, yeah, we'll definitely keep an eye out for those, see how, they, how it comes along, keep watching out. But um, yeah, if that's something that we're seeing that's been trending up, that's definitely good to watch. Uh, make our providers aware that you know, there may be a higher incidence of cardiac arrest calls coming up in their future, but uh, hopefully everything starts to taper down fairly soon. Yes, and then the last part I wanted to quick talk about is um, we've, been, we've been monitoring since March 12th isolation alerts. So those patients that after being assessed by um, an EMS provider, they deem the patient as displaying symptoms or being a potential risk for uh, COVID-19, therefore um, conveying to the hospital that they need to get their isolation alerts 
um, isolation alert measures in place so that they can receive that patient appropriately and um, funnel them through the right process internally at the hospital. So since March 12th, we have seen as of 7.30 this morning, we have seen 519 isolation alerts. Um, and it was a pretty growing cumulative trend uh, since the beginning of um, tracking this data. Right now, it looks like the trend might be slowing or the curve might be flattening when it comes to isolation alerts. So the first two weeks we were seeing increases from you know, 25 to 35, sometimes even 40 isolation alerts per day. Um, and the last week or so, uh, seven days, I think we're, we're, we're starting to see maybe some slowing and isol isolation alerts um, around 20 per day. Uh, so again, we haven't hit our peak. Uh, we could definitely see this pace pick up again, um, but we are, we are measuring this and looking at this daily. We're also looking at isolation alerts by age group. And early on, we saw this interesting trend of patients uh, of the age group of zero to nine years being um, flagged the most for isolation alerts. Since then, that trend has slowed a bit and um, our relatively older population are making up um, the large majority of the isolation alerts. Um, so yeah, lastly, uh, Freightert is receiving um, a good majority of our isolation alerts. To date, they've received 147, but the, district, the, the other hospitals around the county, they're also receiving um, many isolation alerts as well. Excellent. So these, yeah. are all, these are all trends that we're um, continuing to observe every day. And uh, as we get deeper into this, we're ident identifying new trends to look at as we, as we go. Seeing everything that's emerging out of that data. I'm sure there's quite a bit more that's being tracked that's not quite into report format yet, but no end of something to do. Uh, the isolation alert reminder is great. Uh, and hopefully that the trend where it's you know tapering off a little bit and not getting as many isolation alerts during the day is more due to not as many cases presenting as and less so than providers forgetting to uh, call in that isolation alert. I do know if it if there's a hairy, a hairy situation and uh, EMS comm may prompt you uh, if you're giving them signs and symptoms that might be uh, relevant to make sure that isolation alert goes through. It's a kindness to our healthcare providers at the hospitals, make sure that they're prepared for potential alert, uh, potential infectious patient, uh, as well as making sure all those new routing rules and uh, guidelines are followed once you're getting to the hospital. So. Uh, keep up the good work giving those isolation alerts as necessary. So we're monitoring a lot of data out there. And one of those things that we're also keeping track of are those cases uh, in which there's a positive test. So I'm to thank Shannon for all her hard work and her nice little report out there and everything that she's been doing. Uh, and I'm gonna pull Linda into the conversation Talk about some of the QI initiatives that are happening uh, within the county, what we're doing with the information, the cases that are coming through. Uh, and really the biggest one, Linda, is what happens if, when there's a positive case in the county. Good morning, everybody. Um, as you can imagine, we're all very busy uh, collecting and reviewing information related to COVID. Uh, and for our QA team, um, one of our priorities is uh, matching up cases 
that are reported as positive with the EMS encounters and personnel that may have provided care. Um, why do we do that? Um, if you're familiar with the Ryan White Act back from 1990, uh, it basically mandates that EMS personnel can find out whether or not they were exposed to a life-threatening disease while providing care. Um, so we take that very seriously. Um, and we, what we do is we review the reported positive cases. Uh, and since we have the ability to review uh, EPCRs across our system, we can uh, search for encounters. Um, and then our goal would be to provide notification to agency administrators um, regarding those encounters. Um, if, if needed, when an agency provider, uh, and these go to administrators, um, they can review the report, uh, they can assess for adequate PPE, um, if they need to interview the providers because not enough information is included, they can do that. Um, and our, our goal is timely notification. So um, we, it, and with that, I should say that uh, agency providers are basically trying to determine whether or not um, quarantining is necessary. And we have a very low quarantine rate um, because of the uh, PPE that's worn by our providers and uh, the documentation. And I have to say, reading so many of these reports that uh, the documentation has, has become very detailed, which is, which is great. And I encourage you to continue that. Um, and then as far as our process goes, uh, we basically review the Wisconsin disease surveillance site. Um, sometimes at a minimum three times a day, sometimes five times a day. We do that seven days a week and we have seven of us uh, doing this. And our goal is to match these encounters up um, and in some cases, multiple encounters. Um, we take that information, we enter it into a database that we've created um, and we um, have an auto notification process that goes to administrators um, of each agency um, and they review it again for the protection and exposure. Um, I encourage our providers to make sure that they uh, document the role of each provider on the call, the PPE used, um, all the procedures, and then the refusal process. That's, that's uh, critical for these COVID cases. Um, we've, uh, as I speak, our uh, team is reviewing the cases that came across this morning, uh, 40 cases, um, and then I review them and we send out the auto notifications. So that's basically our process. And again, the goal is, is timely notification to the administrative staff. Yeah, so if those are updated this morning, that's just a couple hours old information. So uh, that's great that we can get out that information out to the departments if there's a possible exposure, make sure all those PPE requirements were met um, and everyone's staying safe out there. Uh, Dan had mentioned the RRV program in his update uh, and how a lot of MIH folks are following up. How's that program going? What are we doing on the QAs, QI side uh, with that RRV? So the RRV program uh, has been in place since, uh, for this purpose since I believe um, March, March 19th, they were getting rolling and March 25th, they were really underway. And um, we've created um, 
a similar, similar database um, for them to go through the process of notifying, following up with patients that fall into that uh, category of patients on our policy or protocol where um, patients have agreed to non-transport and the MIH staff is going to follow up with them. So um, we import this database every day. Uh, the staff uh, reviews the cases and from the day before, they look at those cases and the goal is for the first call to be made the following day. Um, that's what we call the two-day follow-up. During that call, um, they have a series of questions that they ask. Basically, you know, they're, they're assessing the signs and symptoms. You know, is a patient feeling the same, better, or worse? Uh, have they spoken to a primary doctor? Do they need help in um, obtaining a doctor? Then they would connect them with uh, 211 and County Resources. Um, they ask about their symptoms. They ask if anybody else in the home is sick. Um, and then if they have an issue with maintaining their uh, prescriptions, uh, the staff can help with that as well. Um, the way these cases are collected is basically uh, all the ARV units in the county, that includes um, 114, 56, ARV 2 and 3, as well as the COVID med units, um, all these cases are reviewed and um, in there's a process where they can actually uh, enter a person into the program uh, directly through the EPCR or uh, that staff will read some of these cases and determine if, if a callback was recommended. Um, and then they're entered into the system and they make that call, ask these questions. In addition to that day after follow-up, they do the same process on day four. And then there's also day seven, 10 and 14. And that is the complete series of uh, follow-ups that are made. Um, in addition to the questions, they review the techniques about, um, you know, staying at home, um, not sharing personal items, things like that. And they, um, they um, also provide any other uh, answer, answers to questions, discuss any conversations they have with their doctors. So it's a, it's a great resource. And I did speak with uh, all that staff yesterday and they said that the appreciation that they're receiving from these patients has been expressed in, in uh, numerous ways on these calls. So the, uh, the, the population that's staying home and that's receiving these calls, is, it really likes that somebody is kind of watching them and is there to answer questions they have and connect them with resources. Excellent, yeah, it's quite a program we've got going on there. Uh, uh, Big thanks to all the providers that are out there providing that care for all of our residents. So with all those programs going on, what's kind of going on with the QA review process for a lot of these cases? So um, the kind of things that we're, we're looking at, um, since I just was talking about the RRV part, um, and again, it's ARV, alternate response vehicle, RRV is reserved. Um, it's just uh, those are the same, referring to the same uh, program. Um, we're looking at um, management of symptoms at home and improvement, um, compliance with self-isolation, um, the number of people that need to be connected with uh, resources. Um, and also, you know, we're going to be looking at the rate of later calls to 911 or later hospitalization. Um, 
Um, so those are the kind of things we're looking at for the RRB program. And then for the QA process for our general COVID positive calls tied to EMS resources, um, we're looking at how COVID symptoms are reported in the EPCR, whether people are being appropriately categorized into the severity risk. And, and again, just to remind our providers that are listening, the, the classification of low risk, high risk is for the disease severity. So it's not a prediction of whether or not they have it. It's, it's the prediction of whether or not they would be prone to um, low risk of severe disease or high risk of severe disease. Um, and then of course the quarantine rate is, is another thing that we will be monitoring as well. Excellent, thank you, Linda. Thank you. Uh, at this point, I'll open it up to anybody on the panel. If you've got any final thoughts, anything that we've talked about that you want to add to? Nobody seems excited, excellent. Everyone's <laughs> ready to get off on the next, next adventure for the day, their next COVID-19 discussion. Uh, so with that, we'll wrap it up. Uh, for those out there that may have had questions, may have questions in the future, things that they want answered from the county, uh, from the docs, from any programs that are running currently, I would encourage you to attend the town hall meetings. And those are events are up in Target Solutions with the dates, times. Uh, if they're getting popular and people have questions, uh, they'll continue on. If it flags off, they may decrease in uh, frequency. Uh, but they're currently planned for pretty regular date and times. Dan, next one's tomorrow, question mark? Yeah, tomorrow and Thursday at 9 a.m. both days. And like you just said there, if these uh, are really popular, uh, Dr. Weston's committed to, to doing more of them, even, in, even after the COVID. Terrific. Uh, so those are up. So if, yeah, questions arise as we go through this whole pandemic and we'll see how those trends go if you if more and more things come up please feel free to jump into those town hall meetings uh, get your questions answered as best as possible uh, so with that i will thank everybody for their time listening today i will thank the panel for joining me in this discussion on everything going on locally covid related uh, and with that have a good afternoon. Stay safe out there, everyone. Bye now.